in your outline that uh, Audrey did for us, I made a mistake. The first reference there, it says 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 7. That's supposed to be 2 Corinthians. So you might want to change that. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. That's actually what we want to zero in on as our title and our text. Second Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We need to realize that when God works through us, it's not us that gets the glory. We don't deserve it at all. <laughs> it's interesting, a song we sang, it speaks of us being wretches, <laughs> a wretch like me. And we've all failed, haven't we? We've all sinned and we all need the grace of God. And when we receive it, it's not because we're good, it's because he's good. It's because he died on the cross for us. It's because he rose from the dead. That the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. Well, in the Bible, we discover that God makes use of weak things. First of all, let's consider Deborah and Jael, J-A-E-L. Back in Judges chapter 4 and 5, the Israelites were being oppressed by Jabin, king of Canaan, by his general, his captain, Sisera. He had a whole bunch of chariots. Those are very important, strong military implements. He had a whole lot of soldiers. The Israelites needed to be released from this oppression and the thievery that went along with it. But it's interesting that the main person was not big, strong Barak, the general for the Israelites. The main person was a lady, a prophetess. Her name was Deborah. And so in Judges chapter 4, we find about this. And God tells her, and she goes and tells Barak, the captain, He's going to go out and fight this battle. And he's afraid to do it. He says, I'm not going to do it unless you go with me. <laughs> so he insisted that this uh, prophetess, Deborah, went with him or he wasn't going to go. Well, she agreed to go with him. And uh, she said to him, eventually, verse 14, verse chapter 4, Judges, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Is not the Lord gone out before you? So he went ahead and did that, and then it says how God took care of the situation in verse 15. Took care of Sisera, all his chariots, all his army, and so on. But Sisera, the captain, the enemy captain, escaped. And that's where the lady Jael, J-A-E-L, comes into play. She ended up 
taking care of the captain of the enemy. She ended up assassinating him. And so the honor was not to Sisera, who got killed, not to Barak, the great captain, but to a lady. <laughs> She's the one that had the honor of executing this very bad man. So you can read about that in the rest of the chapter, chapters 4 and 5 of Judges. So God used a lady. In fact, he used two of them, Deborah and Jael. Now in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it mentions the wife being the weaker vessel. Now that does not mean she's not as important as the husband, but physically speaking, usually ladies aren't quite as strong as men, so that's what it's talking about. But it tells how the weaker vessel, the wife, can help the unbelieving husband to become a Christian. You can read about it in that chapter if you want to, how the weak, unbelieving wife influences the husband to accept the Lord. God uses weak things. God can use us. We're all weak when you come right down to it. Then there's over in Judges chapter 6, 7, and part of 8, that wonderful story about Gideon. Again, they were being oppressed, the Israelites, and by the Midianites. They were concerned. They'd been praying to God. And so eventually, God chose a weak person, Gideon, to go and bring them victory. Well, Gideon didn't want to do that. He knew his limitations. How could he go out and be the leader? Well, God showed him in several ways, including some signs that he required. But then finally he agreed but, and had an army of 32,000. But of course the enemy had a huge army, much bigger than that. But God told him to do an amazing thing. Basically said, your army's too big. You got to get rid of a bunch of them. Tell those that are not brave, want to go home, what have you, let them go home. So he did, and so out of that huge amount, he only had 10,000 left who were willing to be courageous and fight the battle. Still, they were greatly outnumbered. But guess what? God didn't want them to take the credit to themselves when he gave them the victory. So what does he do? He says, you still got too many people, too many soldiers. You got to get rid of a bunch of them. Take them down to the river. Those that are alert and drink, watching, bringing the water to their lips, being alert, use them as the soldiers. The rest of them send on home. So the rest of them, they went down and just drank, and very few of them drank like lapping it up in their hand like an animal might. But he said, those are the ones that I'm going to use to give you a victory. Guess how many of those were left to be the army? 300. <laughs> now they knew if they were to have a victory over the Midianites, 
It had to be God who would do it. Would you dare to go out and fight an army of maybe 100,000 people with 300 people? Of course not. You couldn't do that. So that's what happened. So they went out, and God told them to do an odd thing. You can read about it there in Judges chapter 7, and how they surrounded them at night, and how they had pitchers, and they broke them, and they blew the trumpets, and they yelled out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So the Midianites were waked up, and they heard this and the commotion, and they heard the people yelling, and, and they grabbed what they could, and they ended up killing each other in the darkness. So God gave the Israelites a great victory in a miraculous, weak way because there were only 300 of them. Well, there are other places in the Bible, too, that are similar. If you go with me over to Second Chronicles, chapter 20, you'll find another very interesting situation. King Jehoshaphat was confronted by a huge army, an army of several ethnicities, and it was like a hopeless situation. They were so few. Well, in Second Chronicles chapter 20, thus says the Lord to you in verse 15, don't be afraid or dismayed by reason of this great multitude, because the battle is not yours, but God's. Okay, King Jehoshaphat, you're outnumbered. You have a small army in comparison to your enemies, but the battle is God's. He's going to take care of this. Verse 17, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand still, and see the deliverance of the Lord with you, and so on. And that's what happened. And they actually went out to battle and put the choir in front, the singers, <laughs> whoever heard of such a thing. They said, praise the Lord because his mercy lasts forever in verse 21. Well, as you read on, you find out what happened is the enemies of different ethnicities started fighting each other <laughs> and killing each other. And so here comes Israel, God's people in singing they don't even have to lift a hand. God gives them the victory. The enemies destroy each other. <laughs> okay, God uses weak things to conquer great things. When I was in college at Cal in Berkeley, for a year and a half of my last two years there, I attended the evangelical First Presbyterian Church, Dr. Munger was the pastor there. And he gave great sermons. Later he became a teacher at Fuller Seminary of Evangelism. At any rate, in one of his messages, and this was a long time ago, I don't remember it precisely, but I remember one illustration he used, and it went something like this. He told about a pastor that was preaching, and he asked the congregation, to ask each other, you know, had they accepted the Lord? Did they believe in Jesus? Did they want to go to heaven? And in the congregation, there was a lawyer, a very brilliant man, and he happened to be sitting next to a man that was challenged, a young guy, 
and he seemed to be challenged mentally and in other ways. At any rate, he turned and asked this sophisticated lawyer, uh, did he believe in Jesus? Did he want to go to heaven <laughs> like the pastor had asked him to do? Well, the lawyer basically said no, he didn't believe in Jesus. Well, the mentally challenged guy, he didn't quite know what to say to that. But he had enough brains to say something, and what did he say? He, the lawyer had said he didn't believe in Jesus. So the mentally challenged guy, he finally comes out with, well, go to hell then. Well, that made sense. <laughs> and guess what? This sophisticated, brilliant lawyer, that got through to him. <laughs> that blunt speaking reached him. And I understand he thought about that, and later on he did. He became a Christian, <laughs> put his faith in Jesus. God can use weak things, <laughs> even a mentally challenged young man to reach a sophisticated, brilliant lawyer. An amazing thing. God uses weak things. He gets the credit instead of us. When Jesus came, who did he use? Well, he chose some ordinary people, uneducated people by and large. A lot of fishermen that were used to going out and having a hard day's work or night's work, as the case may be, and imagine choosing them. You'd think he might have chosen basically other people. He even chose a tax collector. Tax collectors were not on the top of the list of people's favorite people. <laughs> they didn't like tax collectors. Publicans, they call them, and sinners. They associated these together. I don't know that we necessarily appreciate uh, taxes today either. But in those days, the tax collectors were working for the occupying force, the Romans. So it was even worse. So God chose ordinary people, tax collectors, fishermen, other people, to be the ones that would establish the church and he would use. So again, he chose weak things. Again, aren't we all weak things in a way? We all need God's forgiveness. We all need God's help. If we're to live our lives in a way that pleases him, we need Jesus. And we need to study the Bible and see what he wants from us. Now, one of the reasons, therefore, that it is by faith is that very purpose that we don't pass, pat ourselves on the back. Instead, that we give God the credit. It tells us in Ephesians that we're saved by faith, not by works, so that we don't take the credit. That's what it's teaching us in Ephesians 2, verse 9. In order that we don't take the credit, it's by faith. It's not by what we accomplish, by our good works, our good deeds, all the nice things that we do for people. That's not the way we're saved. We're saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one might then say, well, what good is 
that do to do good works if we're not saved by works. Well, once we're saved and put our trust in Jesus by grace, then he calls us to a life of service, a life of helping people, created unto Christ Jesus on two good works, it says in the next verse, before the world began. In other words, it's God's eternal purpose for Christian people to live a life of service, a life of helping other people. But they don't get the credit for salvation. God gets it. It's by faith. It's not by works. In fact, this instance of faith carries on beyond just becoming a Christian. It carries on throughout our lives. Our lives are to be lived by faith in an ongoing way. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 1.5. Speaking of Christians, and it says that we are kept by the power of God through faith to deliverance ready to be revealed in the last time. So we're saved by faith. Initially, we're kept by faith, not our own good works. Saved by faith, kept by faith. God gets the glory, not us. Now, the gospel may seem to be very weak, but in reality, it is very powerful. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply that God's son, Jesus, the Messiah, came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. And as we trust in him, then we are saved. It talks about this in Paul's inspired words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation, to deliverance, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It's the power of God. At Horton Hall, right near Cal campus, sometimes I would go in there. It's a Christian place. And they had a plaque. And this was on the plaque, what I just read you. Power of God, it tells us. That's the gospel. Now, having said all that, let's go to our primary scripture today. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 18. And so you'll see as I read this how it's emphasizing God's power and not man's. This is a great passage, actually. 1 Corinthians, beginning in 1.18. Because the preaching of the cross is to them who perish foolishness. Well, that's true, isn't it? But to us who are saved... It is the power of God. Two vitally different ways of looking at Jesus' death on the cross. Either foolishness or God's power. Because it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of this world? That's quite a question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Because that after in the wisdom of God, 
The world by wisdom, by its wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them who believe. Imagine using people to, to preach to give the message of salvation. Because the Jews require a sign. Remember, they asked Jesus for a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Remember, there was a place there in Athens, and there were philosophers, and they were seeking after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. <laughs> There's the cross. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so we as Christians, we look at it very differently than the unsaved, than the sophisticated, than those who require a sign. We know it is God's power. We've seen it act in our lives. It's changed us. We've seen other people's lives changed by trusting in Jesus. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise men after the flesh, that is physically, not many strong, not many noble are called. But God has chosen what? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are strong and base things of the world and things that are despised, God has chosen. Yes, and things which are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. So there it is, that we don't pat ourselves on the back, that we don't take the credit, that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him, and see how God has done this, of him you are in Christ Jesus, whom God has made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that according as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And then he goes on another seven verses here. And I, brothers, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, that is, man's wisdom. He didn't come, you know, as a great speaker, as a great orator, as a great uh, intellectual, declaring to you the witness of God, because I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he decided to stick with. Christ, who he is, and his death for our sins. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, God's power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so it goes on here. So Paul is very careful to give God all the credit. He's very anxious 
that they know it is powerful and it's God's wisdom doesn't agree with the wisdom of man or the power of man and doesn't really need all these signs, though, of course, there were signs, the many miracles of Jesus. And then the greatest sign of all is resurrection from the dead. Well, having said that, how does philosophy fit in? How does our knowledge fit in? Well, you read in Colossians chapter 2, Basically, it doesn't fit in. It doesn't work. And the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they're found in Jesus. And, of course, he was speaking very much against the Gnostics, those who claim to have knowledge, especially secret knowledge. And they thought through their knowledge people could be saved. So Paul explains it's not that way. <laughs> it's by the power of God through the simple testimony of who Jesus is, what he did, and how he victoriously rose from the dead. The old King James, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, about knowledge. Well, actually, it's talking about Gnostics, about the so-called knowledge, and it's putting down that thought. God then uses weak things to confound the mighty. God uses weak things to establish his kingdom. He used the powerful good news message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so since we are weak and not to take the credit, God is to be given the credit. I really like how the prayer goes in Psalm 115. Very first verse says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your own name give glory for your mercy and for your truth's sake. So what a wonderful prayer that is. Don't give us the credit, Lord. For yourself, you get all the glory. And when you come right down to it, that's the purpose of life, isn't it? To glorify God. And I heard a preacher on the radio just the other day, if I understood him rightly, he was basically saying this, this issue of giving glory to God and praising God. How do we deal with that? Why would God require that? And then he finally realized God requires that for our good, for our best interests, for our joy. And I'd basically come to that conclusion many years ago, that we praise God and honor God, give him the credit, not only because it's true, but for our own sake. It's best for us and for our happiness and for our fulfillment to acknowledge him, to bring him all the glory.